Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe. Uh, welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. Uh, it's brought to you here on a weekly basis. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Uh, today is Sunday, October 22nd, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting live uh, from our studios uh, in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again to yet another edition of uh, the Pan-African Journal. Later on in our program, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire reports. We'll have dispatches on the recent statement by the Lebanese resistance movement Hamas on the situation in Palestine. Clashes have been reported in Khan Yunus uh, between the Al-Qasim brigades and the Israeli Defense Forces. Syria has reported that its airports in Damascus and Aleppo were struck in IDF attacks uh, overnight. And the ousted president of Niger has failed in an attempted break from detention. In the second hour, we look at the potential for a full-blown regional war in West Asia. We then review the origins of the Palestinian crisis, going back to the Balfour Declaration of World War I. Finally, we examine the recently held third summit of the Belt and Road Initiative in China. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. We'll take our musical interlude uh, with the revolutionary voice and music of Egypt, Um Kaltoum, from a live concert. Let's listen in. Thank you. 
رحم القلب الذي يصبو إليه فغدا تملكه
October 22nd, uh, 2023. Uh, we're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. Right now, we'd like to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. And uh, these are some of the stories, the headlines uh, in today's uh, Pan-African Newswire. And uh, the lead story uh, deals uh, with the Deputy Secretary General of the Lebanese Resistance Group, Hezbollah, Sheikh Naim Qasim. Uh, issued an important statement today. The statement, a copy of which was received by the Palestine Chronicle, once more emphasized complete solidarity between Hezbollah and Palestinian resistance groups in Gaza. However, the statement carried political and strategic messages regarding Hezbollah's next move in its ongoing and although limited confrontation with the Israeli military in South Lebanon. Hezbollah is committed uh, to keeping pace and confronting as part of this vision to serve the victory of resistance, the liberation of Palestine and Al-Quds, and what serves our nation. The phrase keeping pace here is quite critical. It simply means that Hezbollah will escalate depending on the escalation of the Israeli war on Gaza. What we are doing in the south of Lebanon now is a stage that aligns with the confrontation If the situation demands more, we will do more, and the enemy is perplexed. Consistent with the above sentiment, Sheikh Qasim is emphasizing the above paradigm. If the situation demands more, we will do more. Rules of engagement between Hezbollah and Israel seem to have completely changed since the new norms were established following the failed Israeli attack on Lebanon in 2006. Between 2006 and October of 2023, The established paradigm was as follows. If Israel violates Lebanese sovereignty, Hezbollah reserves the right to retaliate, and it often did. What Hezbollah is now saying is that new rules of engagement are in place, meaning that if Israel continues to violate Palestinian rights, Hezbollah reserves the right to retaliate. If the enemy further intervenes, matters will expand, 
and we say to those who contact us that they must stop the aggression first to prevent the conflict from escalating. Regardless of those who are contacting us, Sheikh Qasim had a final message to Israel that unlike U.S. and Israeli claims, it is not Iran or Hezbollah that aim at expanding the conflict, but Israel. Sheikh Qasim is practically telling Israel that expanding the conflict is directly linked to his current war in Gaza. In other words, Hezbollah is making a commitment to Palestinians that the resistance in Lebanon will certainly expand the conflict with Israel shall Israel expand its war on the besieged. And you can read this uh, report in its entirety over the Pan-African Newswire. In other news, in the late afternoon today, Al-Qasim Brigades, the military wing of the Hamas movement, announced that it ambushed an Israeli military unit east of Khan Yunus. A short while later, the Israeli army said that four of its soldiers were wounded, one seriously in the Kasafim area, also east of Khan Yudis. It is clear that both Al-Qasim and the Israeli military are referring to the same incident. So what happened? According to the Palestinians, this is Al-Qasim's statement, a copy of which was received uh, by the Palestine Chronicle. Quote, the fighters of Al-Qasim brigades ambushed an armored Zionist force in a well-planned ambush east of Khan Yunus after it crossed the temporary fence by several meters. The fighters engaged with the infiltrating force, destroying two bulldozers and a tank, and forced to, to the force to withdraw, they safely returned to their bases. The Israeli account is that this is, for its part, uh, the Israeli military said that Palestinian fighters opened fire at its force west of the Gaza fence in the Kasafim area east of Khan Yunus. The Israeli occupation account added that one of its tanks attacked a group that had fired on the soldiers in Kasafim. The Israeli army admitted that four of its soldiers were wounded, one in a serious condition. This is considered the first direct clash between Palestinian fighters in Gaza and the Israeli military amassing at the border since the start of the war. You're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. A civilian worker in Damascus, Syria, at the international airport was martyred and another was injured. Uh, in an Israeli act of aggression early this morning that targeted Damascus and Aleppo International Airports, putting them out of service. Quote, at about 5.25 a.m. today, the Israeli enemy simultaneously carried out an aerial act of aggression with waves of missiles from the direction of the Mediterranean Sea west of the Latakia and from the direction of the occupied Syrian Golan targeting Damascus and Aleppo International Airports, unquote, a military source said in a statement. The statement added that, quote, the aggression led uh, to the martyrdom of a civilian worker at Damascus Airport, the injury of another worker, in addition to causing material damage to the runways of the two airports, putting them out of service. And finally, in the West African state of Niger, Niger's military rulers said they had foiled an attempt by Mohamed Bazoum, the former president, the ousted in a coup on July 26 to escape their custody three days ago on Thursday. Quote, at around three in the morning, the ousted president, Mohamed Bazoum, and his family, his two cooks and two security elements, tried to escape uh, from his place of attention. The regime's spokesman, Amadou Abdramani, said on state television, 
the escape bid failed and, quote, the main actors and some of the accomplishments, un accomplices, unquote, were arrested, he added uh, in the broadcast late Thursday. An investigation has been launched. Quote, the escape plan had involved Bazoom at first getting to a hideout on the outskirts of the capital, Naime, said Avramani. They had then planned to fly out on helicopters, quote, belonging to a foreign power, unquote. Towards Nigeria, he added, denouncing Bazoom's, quote, irresponsible attitude, unquote. Since he was toppled by the military on July 26, Bazoom has refused to resign. Until now, he had been held at his residence in the heart of the presidential palace, along with his wife, Aziza, and son, Salem. With that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment of our program, we would like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussion on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, over 25 years ago. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website, and that's at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, if you'd like to... Um, have access to today's Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast, go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. Uh, we'll be back with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week. I'd rather be lonely Should leave me. 
the voice and music of Candy Staten, tracking I'm just and of course uh, Gaza, the Gaza Strip uh, is considered the largest uh, open air prison in the world and there's a major struggle taking place there as of now uh, it impacts the struggle for the liberation of Palestine but also uh, the situation overall in West Asia and North Africa we're going to listen to a report on uh, the developments in neighboring Lebanon and its potential impact on the outcome of the war of the Israeli Defense Forces uh, backed by the United States and other Western imperialist countries against the liberation of Palestine, the people of West Asia, and uh, North Africa. Let's listen in. Will Hezbollah launch an all-out war on Israel? The Lebanese armed group has exchanged fire with the Israeli military, but it stopped short of using the most powerful missiles in its arsenal. So what could happen if it launches a full offensive? This is Inside Story. Hello again, I'm James Bays. An escalation in skirmishes between Hezbollah and Israeli forces is raising fears of a wider conflict. Saturday marked the worst day in recent fighting along Israel's northern border with Lebanon after six Hezbollah fighters were killed. The Iranian-backed group and Israel have been exchanging fire across that border since Hamas attacked southern Israel on October the 7th. And the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, warned Hezbollah against opening a second war front with Israel. Netanyahu said that would bring unimaginable devastation upon Lebanon. Victoria Gatenby has our report. The personal possessions of people living in fear. Many are sheltering in schools like this after fleeing their homes in southern Lebanon. Fighting around the border with Israel has escalated since Hamas launched its assault on southern Israel on October the 7th. The conflict between the Palestinian group's ally and the Israeli army is raising fears of a wider war. That's as Israel is massing its forces for a possible ground invasion inside the Gaza Strip. We are concerned and we are part of this battle. Let it be clear that whenever events unfold and something arises that requires our intervention to be greater, we will do so. Hezbollah is seen as a significant force in Lebanon, wielding both political and military power. The Shia movement rallied public opinion against the Israeli occupation of southern Lebanon after being founded in the early 1980s. And despite Israel's withdrawal in 2000, Hezbollah has retained its strength with financial and military support from Iran. For Iran, the group is crucial for deterring any attack by Israel and exerting influence in Lebanon and the region. Hezbollah has highly skilled fighters. They helped Syrian President Bashar al-Assad during the country's civil war, and its arsenal is reported to contain Iranian precision-guided missiles. Israel considers Hezbollah its most formidable foe since both sides fought to a standstill in a 34-day-long war in 2006. And now, with the United States deploying two aircraft carriers and several warships to the eastern Mediterranean, the risk of an escalation in fighting in the region is growing. Victoria Gatenby for Inside Story.
Let's bring in our panel of guests to discuss this further in Athens. It's Nicholas No, editor-in-chief editor of the Beirut-based MiddleEastWire.com and news website. He's also editor of Voice of Hezbollah, the statements of Saeed Hassan Nasrallah. In Tel Aviv, it's Yuri Dromi, founding president of the Jerusalem Press Club. He's also a retired colonel in the Israeli Air Force. In Brussels is Elijah Magnier, military and political analyst. He's covered military conflict in the Middle East for the past 30 years. A warm welcome to you all. Thank you very much for talking to us. Um, if I can start perhaps with you, Nicholas. You're today in Athens, but you've been based for many years in Beirut. You speak to people in Lebanon all the time. It's where you're permanently based. Can you tell me what is the reaction so far from people, ordinary people you speak to, to what's going on in Gaza? Well, I actually just returned from Tunisia, where the outpouring of Tunisians onto the streets in support of Palestinians is tremendous. The largest street protest that they've seen since the fall of the Ben Ali regime in 2011. In Lebanon and elsewhere in the Arab world, I'll let Lebanese and Arabs speak for themselves. But I think what we're seeing, and me as an observer, someone 20 years in Lebanon uh, is, is seeing and speaking with friends and trying to find my way back there right now, is... Uh, is really uh, two things. One is great anger over the scenes that are unfolding, over the death and destruction. Uh, great anger as well and frustration that there seems to be little to stop uh, the devastation moving forward. And I think amongst Lebanese friends and loved ones and colleagues, a great fear amongst many of them, uh, you know, most of whom are, of course, civilians or unaffiliated or affiliated with political parties that have a quite different position than Hezbollah do. And they are quite concerned that a devastated country, which is currently Lebanon, could see even wider devastation if indeed the border skirmishes, which now many of us are considering a kind of de facto state of war, if those expand. And if they do expand, I think the, the general consensus is that the destruction in Lebanon and likely in Israel and perhaps elsewhere is going to be tremendous, certainly in Lebanon. And that's exactly what the Israelis have, of course, promised. Yuri, you're a former uh, spokesperson for Israeli governments, but you're also a military man in the past. Um, I want your assessment. Uh, Nicholas just used the word skirmishes. Other people say clashes. What would you say? How would you describe what's been going on in the north to this point? I think Hezbollah or Nasrallah actually is testing the water. Uh, we debate among ourselves whether there was a master plan that uh, Hamas starts first and then uh, Hezbollah moves in when Israel is uh, sucked in into the Gaza quagmire. Uh, but this way or another, um, uh, obviously Hezbollah needs to show some solidarity, but I think Nasrallah is still licking the wounds from, and, and so many Lebanese as well are licking the wounds from uh, 2006. And then I think he settles with those skirmishes, I would tell, uh, call them uh, indeed, uh, and uh, hoping that perhaps that Israel will uh, make the first move and then the blame could uh, lie on the, the Israeli side. Elijah, can I get your assessment of what you think is going on? Because um, it has been getting slowly worse, slowly more intense. In fact, Saturday was the worst day of violence so far in the north. I think Hezbollah is already in the war which the Israelis are not realizing yet. First of all, Hezbollah attacked the radar site, taking the initiative in the Sheba farm that is occupied by the Israelis and considered 
as the Lebanese territory, as imposing an unspoken rules of engagement on the Israelis. Secondly, Hezbollah expanded the scope of its attack targeting area along the borders with Israel, which are 100 kilometers from the Nakura to the Mount of Hermon on all the borders, including to the Golan Heights, the Syrian-occupied Golan Heights. Thirdly, Hezbollah is engaged in fighting inside the territory controlled by Israel rather than defending itself in the Lebanese soil. That means for the first time in the history of Israel, the battle has been moved to the other territory and not happening on the territory that is under the attack of the Israeli army, because normally it's Israel that takes initiative to start a war. Fourthly, Hezbollah has engaged by mobilizing all its elite forces along the border, showing that they have evacuated all the training camps, all the military facilities, and leaving only concentration area to engage with the Israelis. That is an indication for the Israeli military on the other side of the border that Hezbollah is already at war and is starting within the first two kilometers, and now it has expanded to five kilometers. Fifth, Hezbollah is already blinding all the Israeli electronic surveillance capabilities by removing them, bombing them, uh, using the snipers, removing all the thermal surveillance cameras, the sensors, the spying devices, communication towers, etc. That is forcing the Israeli army to rely on drones and on physical patrols, exposing them to Hezbollah laser-guided uh, missiles and hitting so far more or less 40 Israelis between killed and wounded. By starting all this military operation, Hezbollah has drawn to itself three Israeli divisions, including special forces, to make sure that they are not going all to Gaza and they are engaged there, forcing the Israeli army to create two lines of defense on the borders with Lebanon. The war has started already, but it's in a different way. Okay, let me bring in Nicholas on that, because, Nicholas, you literally wrote the book on the words of Hezbollah's leader. So can I perhaps give you the words of Hezbollah's deputy leader, uh, Naim Kassim, Sheikh Naim Kassim. Um, we are trying to weaken the Israeli enemy and let them know we are ready. He was speaking at a funeral for a fighter, and he went on that they were keeping three Israeli army divisions tied up in the north instead of preparing to fight in Gaza. Exactly the point uh, that Elijah just made. What's yeah, exactly the point. I mean, yeah, I, w I would say, I mean, first of all, you know, we, we translated uh, and, and communicated some of these uh, speeches and interviews over the years, which I think provide the basis for the tactical and strategic moves that Elijah and others are describing right now that we're seeing. And I think one of the most important things, if you actually look at what Hezbollah leaders uh, have said, actually, quite publicly or in private as well, I think what you need to do as a first order of business is push back against what, what Yuri just said, 
which is that Hezbollah somehow is still licking its wounds from the 2006 war. I think quite in reverse, that is regarded as a divine victory. Indeed, that's what Nasrallah has called it. That's what you cited Naim Qasim, the deputy head, has called it. That was actually viewed and continues to be viewed as a major strategic victory for Hezbollah. And I would actually also agree with some analysts who say that that really marked a turning point where Israel's qualitative military edge, we can see a steady decline vis-a-vis the military forces that Hezbollah has been able to build up, that they have developed through the war in Syria, whether you're for it or against it, they have, ex- they have extraordinary battle-hardened experience there. And to say that they look back at 2006 as a kind of something that where they, it costs a tremendous amount, indeed, it's quite the reverse. And Hezbollah leaders are actually very, let's say, buoyed by the experiences of 2006 and afterwards. In fact, they view that as having been a victory that lays the framework for what comes in what they call this next great war. If we're there right now, today we are not at that moment, but I think all of us probably agree that the factors kind of that might spark this off or lead it to an acceleration into an even deeper conflict um, are all building up uh, by the hour, unfortunately. If I could bring you in, Yuri, do you think Israel is underestimating the strength of Hezbollah? No, no, I don't think so. But I think Hezbollah is underestimating the strength of Israel. And the fact that they look at uh, what Nicholas Joseph said about uh, looking at the 2006 campaign as a victory reminds me of the Egyptians who have a museum of the uh, victory in the Ramadan war, in in, uh, the Yom Kippur war. And uh, if you remember, it started with them, both the Syrians and the Egyptians, taking us by surprise. And in one week uh, or 10 days, we were in the outskirts of Damascus and 101 kilometers, not from Tel Aviv, but from Cairo. Now, 50 years have passed since. Uh, so the question is, is indeed, as was said, the, the quality edge of, uh, of Israel is uh, declining. Uh, I think uh, both Hamas and probably Hezbollah will find out very soon that this is not the case and uh, that the IDF has really learned the lessons. And um, uh, if I'm not uh, mistaken, then Nasrallah himself is in the bunker for 17 years, I believe, and uh, if he used to boast of being the defender of Lebanon, I don't think that many in Lebanon treat him like that. And, and in general, the idea that, that Nasrallah is uh, promoting, that Israel is weakened, Israel uh, is like the spider's web theory, etc. This is misinterpreting the, what democracy is. And they saw, they looked at the protests uh, uh, here in Israel in the last six or nine months and, uh, and, and took it to be a kind of a weakening of Israel rather than uh, seeing how vibrant the Israeli society is. So they're going to test us again, and I think they will be uh, up to big surprises. 
Elijah, I'd like to move on from 2006, but before we do that, that was a 34-day war, and Hezbollah fired some 4,000 rockets. I remember the Katusha rockets, not very accurate at all. Just quickly bring us up to date. How has Hezbollah's force, how has its weapons changed since 2006? Since 2006, Hezbollah fought like, I think, Iran as well. There's nothing can be two things. First, the Israeli Air Force uh, that is very modern and very powerful. Secondly, the unlimited support from the Americans. Because without the Americans, Israel will never engage in a war because the war needs a lot of ammunition and a lot of money to top up the uh, the dreadful economy in a state of war. Nobody would go to war without making sure that they will have a lot of money and they will be supported and they create a bridge, as the Israelis always create a bridge with the Americans and Europeans this time in 2006 via, via Ireland to supply the Israelis lack of bombing because they need a lot of bomb. I mean, it's not easy to bomb for 14 days a small city like Gaza, and to achieve the killing of 1,837 children and 1,023 women, it requires a lot of effort, really, and a lot of bombs. Now, we move on by saying that Hezbollah understood that, and to compensate, it needs a long-range missile. And if we look at the distance between Nakura and Ilat, that is more or less 400 kilometers. That is, Hezbollah starts fighting and launching uh, missiles from the borders, which is not going to be the case because Hezbollah has moved outside the residential areas to take away from Israel the excuse of bombing civilians, which is, I don't think is going to happen because the Israelis will bomb the villages anyway. So because of that, Hezbollah needs only a distance to target Haifa and Tel Aviv where all the concentration of the Israeli industrial, economic, and critical infrastructure is in Haifa and Tel Aviv, which are between 30 to 60 kilometers. And because of that, with all this precision, long-range missiles, Hezbollah needs to reduce the range of the missiles and to increase the explosives by having half a ton or one ton of explosives for each missile. Now, people will argue that the Iron Dome will intercept. We've seen how the Iron Dome, when flooded with missiles and rockets, is not capable of intercepting 100%, but it is always between 55 to 60%, which is more than enough for Hezbollah for 40 out of 100 missiles. And according to the Israeli information, Hezbollah has 250,000 missiles and rockets and all these rockets have been modified with a very cheap amount of money to precision rockets, and we're talking about here to from 7 to 25 kilometers only. So I don't think Hezbollah is underestimating the Israeli power, firepower. It is, of course, underestimating the army itself when fighting man-to-man, because we have seen the invincible army becoming very vulnerable after only a few hours of Hamas attack in, against the um, uh, Gaza division, and in few uh, hours only, making so many hundreds 
uh, soldiers as uh, hostages or prisoners, including for generals. So because of that and because the damage that is going to be inflicted on, is on Israel, I think Israel needs to think twice before thinking I'm going to stop the uh, fighting against Israel. And I think it is doing so because for the first time in the history of Israel, it has accepted to fight on a demarcation line. It is not exceeding a certain kilometer and distance imposed by Hezbollah by a non-state actor against the most powerful army in the Middle East in just a few days. So the drone capability of Hezbollah, the anti-ship missiles, the precision missile that can hit all the energy platform, Haifa Harbor, all the airports in Israel will not only cripple the economy in Israel, but will destroy it totally, even if Biden will inject $14 billion. We see today there are no more rooms and hotels in Israel. They are starting with tents. So for the first time, they are moved to become internally displaced. This is not something very usual for the Israelis not to find a place for them. And the war on the northern front hasn't started yet. Okay, let me bring in let me bring in uh, uh, Yuri there. Um, Elijah paints a picture of a very sophisticated military force. I'd like to um, bring up with you some reporting, which I think is interesting. Uh, comments from the Israeli Defence Minister Yoav Gallant. Uh, he seems to be worried about Hezbollah. He says Hezbollah is ten times stronger than Hamas. And also, and I'm going to quote where this comes from, the New York Times. It says that in the early days after October the seventh. Um, Mr. Gallant, the defense minister, um, apparently told U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken that he had advocated a preemptive strike on Hezbollah, but he was overruled by other Israeli um, officials. In your view, was he right? Uh, I wouldn't advocate a pre-meditative attack against Hezbollah. I would deal thoroughly with Hamas first. Uh, and uh, keep uh, Hezbollah at bay. I don't share uh, Elijah's uh, uh, pessimistic or, or, or bleak view of what's going to happen in a, in a war with Hezbollah for the simple reason that uh, if a war starts, uh, of course it will begin with the barrage of uh, missiles and rockets, etc., and he's right. They're going to cause us a lot of damage. But in the few hours of such war, in the few hours, definitely in a day or two, uh, Israel will inflict on Lebanon such a a dramatic uh, damage that uh, not only Lebanon or other Lebanese will uh, rise up in arms, but but the whole world will call for a stop. And then we will uh, insist on going on until Hezbollah uh, uh, steps back. Uh, so I don't think it will be a protracted war like uh, in 2006. It will be very, very uh, dramatically uh, different from, uh, from, the, from the other. And as, as for what uh, Gallant said, uh, yes, some people in Israel, probably Gallant himself, believe that uh, 
this is the right moment, and we shouldn't uh, repeat the mistake we did with Hamas, that we let it uh, grow and arm itself and, and become such a uh, huge threat to Israel, and we should deal with it now, because later it will be even more difficult. Um, I doubt it. As I said, uh, Israel should uh, keep uh, Hezbollah at bay, uh, and if dragged into war, as I said, uh, the price Lebanon will pay would be, be dramatic. And I said it with sorrow, because look, in the past we fought army, army versus army. Uh, and, 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 but, but they leave us no other choice because they really, uh, take all of Lebanon as human shield. And this is what's going to happen to Lebanon, unfortunately. Okay. Well, let's, let's, let's bring in Nicholas on that. Um, Nicholas, what is your view? I mean, Lebanon is suffering already. It had that appalling, um, port blast in, in Beirut in 2020. It's suffering one of the worst of economic crises any nation in modern times has faced. Not everyone, definitely not everyone in Lebanon supports Hezbollah. They have very passionate supporters, but as you know, it's a very d divided society. What would be the reaction in Lebanon across Lebanese society if his Hezbollah did get involved? Well, again, I'm not Lebanese, so let's let Lebanese speak on behalf of themselves. But what we do know is previous, and there's a long history, that shows, I think, that Yuri is making a grave analytical error here in assuming that if Israel implements its operational fighting doctrine, known as the Dahieh Doctrine, which considers civilian populated areas and civilian infrastructure as lawful enemy combatants and a wide destruction. As they've said, they'll turn Lebanon into a parking lot. If they think that that's going to then turn other communities against Lebanon, we have example after example through the last 20, 30, 40 years of where actually the opposite happens. It leads to national solidarity and support against an outside enemy that's so widely destructive. So the notion that Lebanese are going to rise up wildly or massively and create a kind of military balance against Hezbollah is dangerous fantasy in my view, simply because of the history. But again, Lebanese can speak to that better than I can. I think also there's a grave error here in thinking that it will just be a bunch of rockets, for example. This is not 2006. There are very likely going to be significant ground incursions by Hezbollah, which have been telegraphed and telescoped over the last 15 years. I'll also remind everyone that it was more than 10 years ago that Hezbollah successfully flew a drone undetected over Israel's main nuclear power facility in Demona undetected and that was a long time ago the okay let, let me, the, we're, we're getting near the end of our discussion tough. i'd like to bring in elijah one more time if there is a ground intervention a ground invasion by israel do you think hezbollah will act a, a brief answer please um i don't think it's going to be immediate reaction to interfere on the contrary i can share, share some insightful information through my sources within the group so i think today it is in Hezbollah's advantage for Israel to break into Gaza and to be engaged in Gaza. So the weaker the Israelis are, the lack of security the Israeli society has with its army and its intelligence uh, um, uh, forces, and the engagement in Gaza with all their might will give the possibility for Hezbollah to take advantage of the situation because it's an opportunity 
and then be in love, like, even if it's going to be to a larger war that is going to be deadly for both. But the question is, is Israel ready for that? Is, are the Americans ready? Because they have also bases in the area and they are starting to be targeted. Is Israel uh, 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 prepared to have a mass in, internally displaced people being so deadly wounded that starting to crumbling already there is no support for the government, even if in case of war everybody supports Netanyahu, but they can't wait the moment to kick him out of the government. So today there is a lack of security in Israel after what happened in Gaza and outside Gaza in the first hours on the 7th of October, and this confidence is going to be deteriorate even more as 50,000 people have been evacuated in the last 72 hours from the borders with Lebanon, and more are going to be evacuated to where? Is this what the Israeli government promising to the Israelis, bringing them from all over the world to give them security? Of course not. And when the bombs start falling, nobody is going to count the bombs, but everybody is going to look at the screaming. And as your guest from Israel rightly said, they want the world to interfere, to stop it, because someone else needs to bring everybody down the tree because they stuck there and they know what are the consequences that are going to be detrimental for Israel for the first time in its life since 1948. Elijah, thank you very much. Thank you to our panel of guests. That's where we have to leave it. Our guests today were Yuri Dromi, Nicholas No, and Elijah Magnier. If you want to go back and see this or any of our other programs, again, you can find them on our website, aljazeera.com. Al Jazeera continues its comprehensive coverage of the conflict 24 hours a day, including reports from our teams on the Israel-Lebanon frontier. If you have any comments on this or any other aspect of the Gaza war, we're waiting for them on Facebook. Go to facebook.com forward slash AJ Inside Story. Or you can use the platform formerly known as Twitter, now called X, and tag us at AJ Inside Story. From me, James Bays, and the Inside Story team, please stay safe. I'll see you again soon. Welcome back. It was an analysis of uh, the potential of a wider regional war in West Asia, uh, utilizing uh, the atrocities being committed uh, by the Israeli Defense Forces, uh, backed by the United States, Britain, and other imperialist countries in the siege upon Gaza, where over 4,000 people, well over 4,000 people have been killed just in the last uh, two weeks. Monumental damage done to the infrastructure, uh, hospitals, churches, schools, and uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, October 22nd, 2023. We are broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. The origins of the Palestinian crisis go back uh, to the Balfour Declaration uh, issued uh, by British Foreign Secretary Lord Balfour in 1917. We're going to listen to a documentary, audio documentary, uh, which uh, explains uh, a lot of the background to the Balfour Declaration and the subsequent uh, Palestinian removal, displacement, genocide, uh, the Nakba, and of course, since uh, the last 75 years into today, 2023, where we have another major transition uh, in uh, Palestinian 
in the Palestinian question. Let's listen uh, to this report. of the State of Israel in May 1948. The Balfour Declaration was a letter sent by British Foreign Secretary Arthur Balfour to a member of the British House of Lords, Lord Rothschild, on the 2nd of November 1917. This letter, sent to a leading figure in the British Jewish community a hundred years ago, had repercussions which even its authors cannot have imagined. Whatever its real intentions, it went on to have a profound impact on the Middle East and its people. And its effects still resonate across the region today. In 1914, these soldiers were fighting on the battlefields of Europe in the First World War. The Allies, Britain, France and Russia fought the Central Powers of Germany, Austria-Hungary and the Ottoman Empire for four years. But the land and sea war was not the only battleground. Muscle was also being flexed behind closed doors as Allies conspired how to redraw maps to their own advantage when the conflict eventually ceased. Sir Mark Sykes for the British and François-Georges Picot for the French plotted how to divide the Arab lands of the Ottoman Empire, assuming it would finally fall. The Sykes-Picot agreement planned secretly to divide it into French and British spheres of influence. France taking most of the Levant, southern Anatolia and the Mosul area, while the British extended their control over the southern Levant, expanding eastwards to Baghdad and Basra, and all the land between the Arabian Gulf and the French territory. Historic Palestine, then still part of the Ottoman Empire, was a bone of contention and would be put under international administration. La Palestine Français, Anglais et Russes n'arrivent pas à s'accorder parce que 
tout le monde veut avoir la Palestine. Pourquoi Parce que, d'une part, la Palestine, la France a de très riches souvenirs en Palestine, et l'Angleterre, elle, c'est surtout la position de la Palestine qui l'intéresse, parce que la Palestine est relativement proche du canal de Suez. Le canal de Suez, c'est la voie qui mène à l'Empire des Indes. On décide de créer un régime international, d'internationaliser la Palestine. I think the British felt that there had not been enough government involvement in concluding the Sykes-Picot agreement with the French. And in that process, they had not really protected their interests well enough for a post-World War era in which the British Empire would continue to seek to be a dominant force in European affairs. And so... Really, officials across Whitehall, including Mark Sykes himself, felt it was a bad deal. In this process, I think there is a question about the Palestinian And it's of huge significance that when they're making these discussions, Jews and Zionism are not discussed. Jews were not to feature in the new cartography of the Middle East, which was to be based on the idea of the Arab nation. Zionism was the movement supporting the establishment of a Jewish homeland in the area it defined as the historic land of Israel. The movement was active in early 20th century London, especially because of the persecution of Jews in Russia and Eastern Europe. Theodore Herzl had founded the Zionist movement in the late 19th century, but Jewish people in Western Europe had not rushed to support it because they were integrating quite successfully into society. Zionists believed that all Jews should someday return to that country. One of the problems was that Palestine belonged to the Ottoman Empire, and the Ottoman Empire um, was not clear that it wanted massive Jewish immigration into Palestine. And the British government offered to let Jews move unimpeded in great numbers into Uganda if they wished. Um, but in any event, it really didn't happen. And it didn't happen because a majority of Zionists felt that Herzl was selling them out and that the only place for Jews to move back to, or at least conscious Zionist Jews to move back to, was Palestine. In this, I think, Britain began to look on the Zionist movement as a possible partner in justifying a renegotiations of their agreement with the French. You see, for Britain simply to claim territory against what they'd already concluded in an agreement with France could create diplomatic problems for the British. But if they were to make a claim to Palestine, not out of self-interest, but in order to advance a great historic ideal of the restoration of the Jewish people to their biblical homeland, that this could justify an adjustment of the terms of Sykes-Picot in a way that the French would accept. The British wanted somehow, uh, and, and more and more increasingly, 
they felt that the Jews held the key to winning the war. Um, and so they had to figure out how to bribe the Jews to support them. Sir Mark Sykes had succeeded in drawing the line he wanted from Acre in the west to Kirkuk in the east. But for some in government, this was not enough. The British were using the Jewish national movement to secure Palestine for themselves. This is when Heim Weizmann is really going to find open ears in 10 Downing Street, in the foreign office, in the colonial office. And it's paving the way towards that critical decision in November of 1917. And so I think you can direct, you can draw a direct connection between Britain's sudden acknowledgement of Zionism as an idea and an ideal, and what they were dissatisfied with in the terms of Sykes-Picot. Chaim Weizmann was a chemistry lecturer in Manchester who had become a prominent member of the British Zionist movement. He was politically well-connected and rubbed shoulders with senior figures in government. So Chaim Weizmann was uh, Russian by birth. He was a chemist. Um, and then he joined the Zionist movement. Um, he climbed in the Zionist movement. He moved to Great Britain before the war, well before the war, maybe 10 years before the war began. He was not before the war very well known in the English Zionist movement. He was pretty well known in the World Zionist Federation, um, but he was by no means the most visible Zionist when World War I began in Great Britain. Weizmann later wrote in his memoirs about having been introduced to a British government minister, Herbert Samuel. Samuel was Jewish, but Weizmann was apparently concerned that he might be anti-Zionist. However, Herbert Samuel turned out to be extremely receptive to Weizmann and went on to write an official memo in 1915, setting out a number of different possibilities for Palestine and the Jewish people. كان وزير الصحة هيلث مينستر هيك شيء يعني فهو كان ما له علاقة يعني مفروض إنه ما له علاقة بالسياسة بس هو كتب مذكرة عن فلسطين لما لقى إنه الظروف اللي طلعتها الحرب العالمية الأولى لقى حاله إنه هو أول يهودي ذو يعني مركز موجود بالحكومة البريطانية كتب مذكرة للحكومة إنه شو بده يصير بفلسطين بعد ما تنتهي الحرب وحط عدة احتمالات إحدى الاحتمالات إنها تصير دولة يهودية أو تصير تحت الحماية البريطانية فلسطين أو تصير بطل يسميها دولة يهودية الكومنولث يعني كيان but he didn't find willing ears in Whitehall or in the colonial office for schemes that involved the establishment of a Jewish state in Palestine. Britain was really concerned with two things by the time that the First World War had broken out. They wanted to win the war first and foremost. This was an imperative for the survival of Britain and its empire. And secondly, they wanted to ensure that coming out of the war victorious, that their empire would benefit from the victory. So at this stage, 
Chaim Weizmann's and Herbert Samuel's ideas about the rights of the Jews to settle in Palestine did not find much sympathy in the corridors of power in London. A disappointed Weizmann wrote to a friend asking whether there wasn't at least a discussion to be had about what he called the chance for the Jewish people. I realize, of course, he went on, we cannot claim anything. We are much too atomized for it. What the debate did do, however, was to throw together Weizmann, the Russian Jewish immigrant searching for a homeland and refuge from persecution, with Herbert Samuel and Lord Rothschild, firm members of the British Jewish elite, established in society and part of the political and capitalist class. Zionism, for the most part, across all of the community, was actually in the minority, but certainly most of all within the Jewish elite, because it threatened the notion of them as 100% committed members of British society. And this was complete anathema for somebody like Edwin Montague, who became Secretary of State for India. For him, Zionism is his worst nightmare. The idea that Jews are not satisfied simply with being citizens of Britain or other countries around the world, but are always longing to go back to the land of Israel. For him, he wanted to demonstrate that the Jews of Britain were first and foremost British. It's important to remember that for people like Rothschild, Zionism had actually been a threat. You see, the elite in British Jewelry had fought for generations to gain acceptance in British society. It was only with the arrival of Disraeli in the 19th century that Jews entered Parliament and could rise to become Prime Minister. And for people of high finance or banking interests, the real elite of the Jewish community in Britain, their struggle to demonstrate their place in British society meant that Zionism, with its claims that Jews were a people apart and should be a nationalist movement in their own right, were anathema. وبالتالي لا ينبغي يعني تقدير الحركة الصهيونية في ذلك الوقت باعتبارها حركة كل يهود أوروبا الغربية وأن هي كانت تلقى دعم من كافة أو من أغلبية يهودية في أوروبا الغربية. هذا من جهة من جهة أخرى يعني الأدلة تشير إلى أنه المسؤولين البريطانيين في المرحلة بعد ربيع 1916 هم الذين سعوا للحديث مع المسؤولي الحركة الصهيونية وليس العكس. فيتمان فين شمش خشوف للفين لو ما ينتظر الصهيوني لو ما ينتظر البريطاني. כי דרך האינטרס הבריטי הוא יוכל אה, לקדם את העניין הציוני. כלומר, וייצמן לא השלה את עצמו, הוא לא חיפש אינטרסים משותפים. Um, that all Jews were Zionists, which was far from the truth, and that therefore the key to winning Jewish support was to offer them Palestine.
Weizmann talked up the degree to which the Jewish community supported Zionism in order to get his message across to the government. But for the British, it seemed to be about self-interest, about winning the war. Recognizing Zionism would be closely linked to gaining global Jewish support for this objective on which it saw its future resting. So the British motives for supporting Zionism, really we can boil it down to two elements of British self-interest at that time. Not an emotional interest in Zionism or a love of Jews and the Jewish plight and a desire for a return of the Jews to the Holy Land. No, for very specific self-interest matters of policy. They were, first of all, all of the British government agreed that they wanted to mobilize behind Britain and the Allies this idea of Jewish power in the world. They were, like all of the different policy elites in the war, believers in the notion that Jews were of tremendous influence in the corridors of power around the globe. If the British government appeared to support Zionism, they would win over world Jewry to their side and all that that entailed. The British were convinced that Zionism was really at the center of the Jewish heart. In May 1916, Sir Mark Sykes had agreed his secret deal with the French. Sykes-Picot would form the basis of the future carve-up of the old Ottoman Empire. So he immediately turned his attention to Palestine, still part of the Ottoman Empire, and how to use Zionist ambitions to outmaneuver the French. Formal contact between the British government and the Zionists followed. He immediately phoned Herbert Samuel and told him about the plan. And Herbert Samuel then phoned Chaim Weizmann, and Weizmann brought with him Nahum Sokolow. This meeting took place on the 11th of April, 1916. It took place at Moses Gaster's house in Maida Vale. Um, and Gaster wrote in his diary afterwards how proud he was that this meeting, which he thought was the most important meeting that had ever taken place in the history of Zionism, uh, had taken place at his house. أول ما مارك سايكس يعني تعرف على الحركة الصهيونية أول شيء اتصلوا مع جاستر لأنه هو كان الممثل تبع الجالية اليهودية بس بعدين راح دوره ووايزمان هو اللي اللي يعني استطع النور تبعه وهو اللي سيطر على كل الموضوع. And Moses Gaster very quickly understands that Sykes is looking to gain support from supposed Jewish power in the world. And Gaster works with this idea and manipulates this to consolidate Sykes' interest in Zionism. And we see actually the British government becomes very close already in 1916 of issuing a public declaration in support for Zionism. Now in the end, this doesn't happen that year. The plan Sykes got Herbert Samuel to pass on to the Zionist leaders involved joint British-French administration of Palestine and a charter guaranteeing British support for Zionism. But his idea was rejected. They didn't want an Anglo-French condominium in Palestine. They wanted the British uh, to protect them, not the French, and that's because they thought that the French always sort of converted their 
colonized people into becoming Frenchmen. And what they wanted was to remain as self-conscious Jews. And they thought that the British uh, would leave them alone and let them do that. אני חושב שמה שהרצל הבין, וגם ויצמן וסוקולוב ורואים אחרים, זה שהבריטים אולי מציעים הצעה שהיא לא כל כך טובה, אבל הם מוכנים לדבר עם התנועה הציונית כנציגת העם היהודי. צריך לזכור שהתנועה הציונית הייתה מיעוט קטן בתוך העם היהודי. רוב היהודים לא היו ציונים. והנה באה המעצמה, אולי המעצמה החשובה ביותר בעולם, ואומרת, הנה אתם... הפנים הרשמיות של היהודים מוכנים לסגור אתכם עסק. Bolstered by their newfound credibility, the British Zionists thought about making specific demands after the Sykes meeting, but events soon overtook them. On the 6th of December 1916, British Prime Minister Asquith resigned. In the change of government, Arthur Balfour became Foreign Secretary under Prime Minister David Lloyd George. Lloyd George, Siyasi Baris in the Hizb al-Ahrar in the time of the time. Then he was the President of the Wazara since December 1916. It was said that he was received a Protestant education and that maybe يعني هذا قد ساعد في في تقبله لفكرة الوجود اليهودي في في فلسطين. Balfour was of rather philosophical bent, and I I think he wanted to think in theological terms. He wanted to think in historical terms. Um, uh, and it, it was with that frame of mind, I think, that, that he uh, approached the whole question. حكومة أسكوت وبلفورد بصفته وزير الخارجية كان أصبح يعني جزء مهم من هذه من هذه العملية. David Lloyd George, A. J. Balfour, and all of those who supported the Balfour Declaration within the British government, we can absolutely categorize as being riven with anti-Semitic thinking. And not only that, but the thinking behind the Balfour Declaration that drove them to the Balfour Declaration was from this anti-Semitic thought. The idea of Jewish power, of Jewish cohesiveness, and of a unified Jewish attachment to Zionism above all else. Whatever its basis, the relationship between the British Zionists and the government would continue to grow throughout 1917, leading to the declaration that would change the face of the Middle East and ultimately determine the destinies of two different peoples. By 1917, the war was shifting in the Allies' favor. And in the Middle East, the British were moving through Sinai towards the borders of historic Palestine. Further north, the Russian Revolution in February 1917 cast doubt on Russia's continued involvement in the war.
as Britain and France tried to outmaneuver one another, the British Zionist movement took on increasing political importance. Uh, Sykes wants to get back in touch with uh, Zionists and think about how to incorporate Zionism in British planning for Palestine. And at this moment we see a hugely important meeting taking place in the home of Moses Gaston in Maida Vale in February of 1917. And this is the point in which uh, Sykes meets for the first time Chaim Weizmann and Nachum Sokolov um, and other Zionists in which it's discussed what the Zionists are looking for um, and the British interest in Zionism. So he had to bring the Zionists along without divulging what were the secret agreements that Britain and France had come to with regard to Palestine, which was that they would jointly administer parts of Palestine. At this meeting uh, for the British government was Sykes and Herbert Samuel. He was there. On the other side, there were um, Weizmann and Sokolow, uh, and there was Moses Gaster, and he brought a couple of his allies because he realized that Weizmann was beginning to push him out of the way. The other very important figure was James Rothschild, uh, who attended this meeting. Um, at the meeting, it became clear to Sykes that Weizmann, not Gaster, was the most important Zionist. This is also the moment where Moses Gaster is dislodged. Um, Sykes, his partner on the French side, Pico, hadn't liked Gaster. Gaster had been insistent that there should be a Jewish state and nothing less coming into being after the war. And Pico uh, clearly wanted Zionists who were much more willing to compromise with the interests of the great powers. And Nachum Sokolov and Chaim Weizmann were certainly happy to fit that bill. The meetings between the Zionists and the government seemed to give momentum to the idea of British support for a Jewish homeland in Palestine and their potential role in its administration. But the secret Sykes-Pico agreement between Britain and France, which formed the basis of the future division of the Ottoman Empire, planned to put Palestine under international administration. Any change would have to be negotiated with France. Nayem Sokolov emerged as the man to talk to the French. Nachum Sokolov was a doctor in history, a Jewish name in Russia, who came from Arabia and worked in Britain. Sokolov became the acknowledged lead diplomat for Zionism. And all the accounts say that he had an extremely sort of elegant bearing and wore very fine clothing and that his manners were uh, polished and polite and smooth, silky smooth, um, so that he could talk um, um, on an equal basis with the representatives of the Germans, Kaiser or the British government or whatever. So the day after the meeting um, between Sykes and the Zionist leaders, Sykes brought Sokolow to meet the French diplomat, uh, Picot. What Sykes wanted was for Sokolow to A, 
persuade Pico that Zionism must be taken seriously, that Zionism uh, really was the key to winning the war, um, um, and that the Zionists would only help the Allies win the war if Britain was the main power in Palestine, not France. François-Georges Picot rédige une petite note qu'il remet officiellement à Sokolov que la France encourage ou encouragera, elle est tout à fait d'accord avec la colonisation juive qui tient tant à cœur, qui vous tient tant à cœur en Palestine. Et non seulement ça, mais en plus, les gens du Quai d'Orsay conseillent à Sokolov d'aller à Rome pour s'entendre avec le gouvernement italien. بتحريض من سايكس نفسه انه سوكولوف يروح ورتب له يعني انه يروح على فرنسا ويعملوا هذا الشيء كان خصوصي معمول علشان البريتش كابينت وبتعرف انه التصريح الفرنساوي طلع قبل وعد بلفور علشان بالكابينت الانجليزيه يقولوا انه اوريدي الفرنساويين طلعوا تصريح. It's hard to know how much influence Sykes ultimately had over British policy making. He was given more prominence in British policy making around the Middle East during the war years than he ever deserved. He was a relatively ill-educated, inexperienced man whose only connection to the Ottoman world had been as a tourist. So for this man to be playing such a role in the halls of power over deciding British policy towards the Near East seems to us today to be anomalous, indeed ridiculous. Regardless of Sykes' role, things continued to progress for the Zionists, and in June 1917, British Foreign Secretary Arthur Balfour asked Chaim Weizmann to present his demands as a declaration and promised to try and persuade his government to adopt it. The leading Zionists formed a political committee and drafted their demands, and then submitted them to the British government. This original document was one of the first drafts written at the Imperial Hotel in London on the 17th of July, 1917. It also introduced a new term and concept, the national home of the Jewish people. So in the initial Zionist drafting uh, of the Declaration, um, there were protests amongst Zionist leaders to Nachum Sokolov that there's no mention of the terminology of a Jewish state, that instead they're talking about a national home. And he said that this is a betrayal of what the Zionists are trying to achieve. And Sokolov's response was that we mustn't go too far. We have to take small steps. We have to go with what is acceptable to the British government at this time. And then slowly, slowly, we can advance our cause once we have this in hand. المصطلح نفسه مصطلح وطن قومي يعني هذا ليس مصطلح يعني في ذلك الوقت كان القانون الدولي يعني قد نضج الى حد كبير وكان يمكن ان تستخدم كلمه حكم ذاتي يمكن ان تستخدم كلمه دوله مستقله وليس في القانون الدولي في مصطلح وطن قومي يعني ما الذي يعنيه وطن قومي لليهود في فلسطين؟ On the 18th of September 1917 there was a meeting of the British War Cabinet the Foreign Secretary Arthur Balfour was absent. The Secretary of State for India, Edwin Montague, who was Jewish, 
strongly disagreed with the declaration. He was opposed to Zionism and said, I deny that Palestine is today associated with the Jews or properly be regarded as a fit place for them to live. Montague thought a French declaration supporting Zionism in June 1917 was anti-Semitic and negotiated changes to the British version as it went through several drafts. الصيغه تبعت الوعد كان لازم تاخذ بالاعتبار الاعتراضات اللي وضعتها القيادات اليهوديه الانجليزيه المعارضه للصهيونيه اللي هي بتقول انه على شرط عدم المساس بالحقوق السياسيه لليهود المقيمين في في الدول يعني الغربيه بالاخير اغاب كشتاكوت اتصرت بانفو زلون اخوم شلجامو لو يكشيو لمونتاجو تشيبو لو הוסיפו להצהרת בנפור סעיף שאומר שגם הזכויות האזרחיות המשפטיות של הלא יהודים כאן בארץ לא תיפגענה, אבל גם הזכויות של היהודים בארצותיהם לא תיפגענה. זו תוספת מאוד חשובה, וזה מונטגיון. sent a modified version to the cabinet. It incorporated some of Montague's changes, including the caveat that, quote, nothing shall be done that might prejudice the rights and political status enjoyed by such Jews who are fully contented with their existing nationality and citizenship. drafting especially by Lord Milner that appeared by September was closer to the language that would eventually be adopted in November of 1917 namely speaking uh, not about Palestine as as a whole uh, but uh, a some sort of presence in Palestine uh, on behalf of the Jews Uh, which is quite different. كانت كل كلمه بوعد بالفور لها معنى فالفرق انك تقول ذي ناشونال هوم يعني قل التعريف الوطن القومي غير عن انك تقول اي ناشونال هوم وهم يعني تناقشوا فيها قبل ما يصدروا الوعد تناقشوا فيها وقالوا احنا ما عم نقول بدنا نعطي ذي ناشونال هوم احنا بدنا نعطي اي ناشونال هوم يعني وطن قومي يهودي في فلسطين The committed Zionists wanted to ensure the declaration was clear that the whole of historic Palestine would be a national homeland exclusively for the Jewish people. The latest draft was sent to Chaim Weizmann, who in turn sent it to the Zionist movement in the United States for their feedback. Uh, there was some consultation you know, during the summer of 1917 uh, with the United States and, and the early drafts that uh, had had the imprint of the Zionist Uh, uh, elements in Britain um, would have referred to Palestine uh, in its entirety as being uh, for some sort of Jewish entity and those elements eventually were modified uh, before the drafting was finalized. Another key part of the terminology that emerged in part of the drafting uh, was in some British redrafting where instead of for the Jewish people it was written 
the Jewish race. Now eventually this was taken out, but I think it's very revealing that British officials wanted to use this kind of terminology because after all this was how they understood the Jews of the world as being a racial group, one that wielded tremendous power and also could be inspired altogether as one unit behind the cause of Zionism supported by Britain and the Allies. It's striking that the existing Arab people in the region were not named at all. They're simply called the quote, existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine. The Jews will be qualified as a people. That means you have the right of people to dispose of themselves. Whereas the Arabs are communities. Des communautés non-juives. On ne cite même pas le nom des Arabes. Ce sont des non-juifs qui n'ont que des droits civils et religieux. Ils n'ont pas de droits politiques. Aucun droit politique. By October 1917, the final draft of the Balfour Declaration was ready, awaiting only British government final approval. There was a rumor that Germany was about to issue a similar declaration supporting the rights of the Jews in Palestine. When Balfour heard, he rushed to get his final draft discussed at the cabinet meeting on the 31st of October 1917. So when we think about the centenary of the Balfour Declaration, everyone considers 2nd of November 1917 as the moment of the declaration itself. But it was actually agreed to by the British cabinet on the 31st of October. And this was a hugely significant meeting. And in the minutes of that meeting, Balfour uh, reiterates the principal reasons for supporting Zionism and highlights its expected propaganda effects uh, amongst Jews around the world, particularly in the United States and in Russia. The argument was, was put forward most strongly by Lord Balfour at the meeting of October 31st. Uh, and what he argued was that issuing this declaration would be extremely helpful for the British uh, in solidifying the support of the United States uh, and also in countering uh, propaganda from Germany. The critical thing to remember about British diplomatic pronouncements is that what one individual says does not represent the views of the government as a whole. And you will find many different points of view among British officials in the years 1917, 1918, and right into the early years of the mandate. But the British were very clear that they had not promised statehood to the Zionist movement. They had no interest in doing so. The British did not support Jewish nationalism. They did not support Arab nationalism. They supported British imperialism. But this is also the meeting where uh, Lord Curzon, who was a member of the War Cabinet, disquiet about the possible effects of supporting Zionism on the Palestinian Arab population and the Palestinian opposition, is completely disregarded. Lord Curzon wrote a paper to the Cabinet asking what was, quote, to become of the people of this country. There were over half a million Syrian Arabs, a mixed community with Arab, Hebrew, Canaanite, Greek, Egyptian and possibly Crusaders blood. They and their forefathers have occupied the country for the best part of 1,500 years. They own the soil. They profess the Mohammedan faith. 
They will not be content either to be expropriated for Jewish immigrants or to act merely as hewers of wood and drawers of water to the latter. But his prescient remarks fell on deaf ears. It's Sykes who tells Hein Weizmann at the end of the War Cabinet's meeting, Dr. Weizmann, it's a boy, as though they've witnessed the birth of an agreement to create a Jewish national home as a baby in the Middle East. The final draft of the Balfour Declaration was 67 words long. His Majesty's government view with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object. It being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. I should be grateful if you would bring this declaration to the knowledge of the Zionist Federation. Yours sincerely, Arthur James Balfour. Well, in terms of international law, it really has very little standing. In international law, you know, treaties between nations have significance, um, uh, but governments often issue policy statements, statements of intention about what they plan to do, uh, and those really don't have any standing as, uh, as a matter of, of law. Uh, for Britain, this was, uh, I suppose you would say, a statement of its intention as to what it would do if it were to take over Palestine, which of course it, it uh, had not yet done uh, as of November 1917. Two years after the declaration, a church leader in Jerusalem wrote to British Prime Minister Lloyd George about Jews in Palestine trying to control holy sites. Lloyd George's office had said that Chaim Weizmann didn't want to do anything affecting the rights of Arabs. It said he simply wanted to be involved in a council to help provide refuge to Jews fleeing Russia and Eastern Europe. This exchange suggested that Britain felt it had not promised a Jewish state, but simply a place for them to live alongside Arabs. When the League of Nations set out the British mandate in Palestine in 1923, it made Britain responsible for implementing the Balfour Declaration. As a result, Jewish immigration to Palestine increased, as did Arab opposition to it, expressed in a series of Palestinian protests against Britain in the 1920s. They understood the people of Palestine to be Muslims and Christians, but did not imagine that they would constitute a national community that would seek national independence. And after the war, very quickly when it becomes clear that Palestinian Arab nationalists are mobilizing against Zionism, the British government are quick to see a major problem. The Balfour Declaration had put in train a series of events that began to signal its deep flaws. Arab dissent built 
to the three-year revolt between 1936 and 1939. It was a nationalist uprising against the British administration, demanding Arab independence and the end of Jewish immigration. It was in the Peel Commission of 1937 that the British first recognized that instead of balancing communities, they had set in motion a rivalry between incompatible national movements, Jewish and Palestinian Arab. And it was at that point that they tried to solve the problem by dividing Palestine into two states, Arab and Jewish, through a partition plan. And I think there you had the first recognition or admission from British officials of the failure of the Balfour Declaration. In May 1939, the British government published a policy document on Palestine called a White Paper. It abandoned the partitioning of Palestine into two states and called instead for an independent Palestine in which Arabs and Jews would share government. It limited Jewish immigration to 75,000 for five years and said that the Arab majority should determine future immigration levels. It also said that Balfour had not meant to create a Jewish state at the expense of the Arabs, any more than the Makman Hussein correspondence 24 years before had promised an Arab state to Sharif Hussein of Mecca. But the white paper met opposition and was dropped. The British government are quick to see a major problem, but there's no way that they can back away from support for Zionism because this becomes the basis for their justification for being in the Holy Land, their commitment to supporting the movement in the Balfour Declaration, which becomes enshrined in international law in the terms of the mandate for Palestine. So the British are stuck with Zionism. They didn't believe that Zionists wanted independent Jewish statehood. And after the war it became very clear that actually the vast majority of Zionists didn't only want statehood, they expected it. I think if we're trying to assess whether or not Britain's policy towards Zionism in the First World War served British interests or not, the first thing we have to appreciate is the key reason that they supported Zionism was based on an incorrect idea. They believed that they could mobilise something that they saw as Jewish power around the world behind the Allied cause. So first of all, that was entirely wrong and didn't happen because this idea of Jewish power is fake, it's false. In September 1939, German expansionism led to the Second World War. Over 60 million people died, including between 5 and 6 million Jews, the majority in Nazi concentration camps. The British mandate ended at midnight on the 14th of May 1948 and immediately the formation of the State of Israel was announced. Justified by the terms of the Balfour Declaration issued 31 years before. While Israelis celebrated the birth of their nation, 700,000 Palestinians were forced into camps and exile. לכן בלי בריטניה לא הייתה קמה מדינת ישראל, אין ויכוח. בלי הציונים זה לא היה קם, אבל גם בלי בריטניה מדינת ישראל לא הייתה קמה. For Palestinians, the Balfour Declaration represents the moment an imperial power promised their land away to another people. This is the desk where the Balfour Declaration was composed. They hold Balfour responsible for their expulsion displacement and occupation.
Welcome back. And that was a documentary on uh, the Balfour Declaration and the origins of uh, the displacement, national oppression, and genocide against the Palestinian people. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, October 22nd, 2023. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'll take a break. We'll be back with our concluding segment for this program.
choice of Marsha Hunt uh, with the track entitled Black Flower. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, October 22nd, 2023. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. The uh, third summit of the Belt and Road Initiative took place uh, just last weekend, interestingly enough, amid uh, the escalation of war on the part of the imperialist countries, yet the countries of the global south and the east are moving more towards infrastructural development, uh, joint economic programs, and financial independence uh, from uh, institutions such as the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. Let's listen to this report on the third uh, Belt and Road Initiative Summit. Belt and Road Cooperation is based on the belief that flame runs high when everyone adds wood to the fire and that mutual support can get us far. Such cooperation seeks to deliver a good life not only to people of just one country, but to people in other countries as well. It promotes connectivity, mutual benefit, common development, cooperation and win-win outcomes. Ideological confrontation, geopolitical rivalry, and block politics are not a choice for us. What we stand against are unilateral sanctions, economic coercion, and decoupling and supply chain disruption. The curtains have come down on the third Belt and Road Forum for International Cooperation in Beijing. The occasion also serves to celebrate the 10th anniversary of the Belt and Road Initiative, or the BRI. Over 150 countries and 30-plus international organizations have signed more than 200 BRI cooperation agreements with China. In Africa, the multi-billion dollar initiative has been instrumental in transforming the transport infrastructure landscape. On this special edition of the program, we look at the key outcomes of the just-concluded third BRI Forum. We will also cross over to my colleague Momodu Choi at QTV in the Gambia to give us more on the impact of the BRI in Africa. I'm Beatrice Marshall. Welcome to Talk Africa. Well, joining me now to take a closer look at some of the key outcomes of the forum and how it may impact Africa from Beijing, Professor John Gong, University of International Business and Economics in Israel, and a China forum expert. And Professor David Monyae, International Relations and Foreign Policy Expert and Director at the University of Johannesburg Center for Africa-China Studies. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us on the program. Let me start off with a question to you both on the just-concluded Belt and Road Forum. The Belt and Road Initiative is marking 10 years since its launch. President Xi Jinping announced eight major steps to support the pursuit of Belt and Road Cooperation. Professor John Gong, first off, let me get your thoughts on the key outcomes of the BRI Forum. Well, um, I think uh, President Xi delivered a, a dynamite speech, uh, and I think it's a, it's a speech full of substance. Um, the eight areas uh, that China is committed to, as you alluded to, 
um, you know, uh, represents a new era in my view in terms of the direction of the BNR uh, development. Um, I think it's not just uh, about um, you know building infrastructures in many developing countries. Um, it's also the next stage of the BNR, which um, is. You know, going beyond that, which gets into areas of you know people-to-people -people exchange, exchanges of societal aspects, um, and and also you know, interestingly, there's also one thing in uh, the, the the eight items he mentioned. That's about opening China more. Uh, I think uh, we can't talk about uh, uh, Belt and Road initiative, initiative without talking about China being more open, more integrated to the. Uh, uh, international economy. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, one thing uh, he said that China is committed to entirely eliminate any hurdles to open entirely uh, to foreign uh, capital in um, manufacturing, for example. I mean, that's a huge commitment in my view, and very few countries can commit to something like this. <clears throat> uh, Professor Munya, your thoughts? Uh, this was indeed uh, an excellent uh, presentation. Uh, and it was delivered uh, in an environment that is fast-changing. And there were a number of ironies. Uh, as President Xi Jinping has brought in a huge delegation coming from all over the world in a harmonious way, uh, building. The irony is that on the other parts of the world in the Middle East, we're stuck with destruction and where President Biden was going, mm -hmm. uh, more or less same day. Um, the speech itself touched on key issues that are relevant. Uh, it means that after 10 years of Belt and Road Initiative, the continuity in a much more stable, refined, and so it's a matter of fine-tuning some elements uh, based on lessons learned in terms of both the positive and negative. I think uh, this time around, going forward, China is prepared to uh, continue with Belt and Road with the international community, a Belt and Road that is people-centered, that is environment-centered, that goes beyond major infrastructure building, uh, involving uh, our culture, uh, involving other issues that uh, brings uh, the world uh, united uh, and moving forward in a, a seamless way, uh, all continents, uh, dealing with issues of peace and security, and therefore uh, a number of uh, issues that directly uh, impact Africa in terms of uh, uh, Belt and Road, it will bring in the youth in terms of training um, in, into China, and it also added new issues. For instance, mm -hmm. for the very first time, uh, artificial intelligence was mentioned as a key uh, area going forward. Right, so Professor Gong, you've talked about the uh, opening China more to an integrated international com community, um, you, an international integrated uh, economy, building a comprehensive belt and road connectivity network, promoting green development, advancing technological innovation. Which areas do you feel matter the most? Well, I think uh, all of these things matter. <laughs> um, but if you if you want me to pick, um, I think um, you know in this political environment, um, you know the commitment to green development uh, related to the climate agenda is probably um, uh, more profound from a global perspective, from from the human perspective, actually. Um, so um, you know, if you want me to pick, um, I would say this is more concerning um, the entire. 
um, global in development concerning the entire human development, mm -hmm. uh, concerning a lot of people. Uh, in all Welcome back. And uh, those were excerpts uh, from a discussion surrounding the third uh, summit of the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, which took place in uh, the People's Republic of China. That's going to conclude uh, our program for today, the Pan-African Journal. Special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, October 22nd, 2023. And uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. If you'd like to have access to this program, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. Uh, that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And um, we're going to close out uh, the Pan-African Newswire uh, with, of course, the music of Miles Davis. And uh, this is uh, from uh, the soundtrack uh, to the movie entitled Jack Johnson. This is Abayomi Azikawe uh, signing off and have a beautiful, beautiful week. <laughs>